When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Chris. I'm Nick. I'm Andy. We are Pot of Thunder. And when you're done with that table shower, make sure to listen to Jay Scott on the Hook Rocks podcast. Jay Scott. It is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Thanks for tuning in once again, coming by and listening to what uh, I've got to talk about and the guests that I have on today. So I always appreciate you you stopping by. We are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, a great network of music-related podcasts. You can check out some of my friends on the platform, such as Vinnie Apice and Carmen Apice on the Hanging and Banging Podcast. Mistress Carrie, the great... Uh, legendary dj out in boston she's got her own thing going on i gotta have her back on it's been a while since she's uh she's visited the show tom and zeus the great uh kiss podcast aaron and chris on decibel geek mac and the ugly american werewolf in london podcast as well as martin Popoff, the rock historian so check out all those great podcasts as well as many others on pantheon podcast you can search the hook rocks wherever you do podcast we're on every platform don't forget to also search us on all social media instagram facebook and twitter don't forget to follow us or subscribe to us and let us know your thoughts on the episodes write us a review tell us what you think we always appreciate it we've had some wonderful guests over the last several weeks 
We've had Mark Tremonti. We've had Todd Damakerns. We just celebrated our three-year anniversary with Stephen Piercy from RAT. So a lot going on in that aspect. Of course, we're always promoting new bands like Band Inc., Native Sun, Stone Broken. And just recently, we had on the band Deep Fall, as well as Griffin Tucker from Classis Act, who's the opening slot on the stadium tour with Def Leppard and Motley Crue. So check out all those. We also do some great music commentary, stuff that you need to know, stuff that we're talking about, trends in the music industry, especially in the rock genre. We did just have our resident audio expert, Skylab Tapes, talking about what you can do on a basically free how to change your acoustics in your home audio and stereo system so you get better sound quality and also what to do when you're at a show and you're at a venue where the mix isn't that good and then maybe the sound isn't that good it's kind of bouncing off the ceiling or bouncing off the you know the the rafters what you can do personally at a show to get a better sound quality experience so check that out as well always well received with his episodes that he has he's a great guest and I uh, look forward to having them on in the future. We've got a great guest for you today. One uh, that I'm really looking forward to talking about because this subject is really near and dear to my heart because I grew up in a time where album art was very important to the listening experience, very important to absorbing music back then because it was part of the package. It was part of the sense of wonder that you had when you went to a record store and you flipped through the records. And sometimes you went there with the idea that you're going to choose a record. You know what record you're going to buy, but then you start flipping through the bins and you choose something else based on the art, based on how captivating it was for you. And sometimes that music matched the artwork. Sometimes it didn't, you were disappointed, but more times than not, it was part of that experience, part of that tangible physical experience that babysat you when you were listening to music and the documentary is called the album and it's from the point of view of the art department for record companies and I'd like to welcome kevin hosman on the director of the of the documentary what's going on kevin how are you doing hey thank you for having me this is going to be fun I've, again, love to talk about something, you know, those those passion projects that take you six years to do. Yeah, I'll chew your ear off. Well, before we begin, we always start the same way every time we have a first time guest. And that is really what we're all about with the podcast. And just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band or performance that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? My brother was a intern at Chicago, the Loop, the radio station, and they had free tickets to a concert. And it was my first one. I was 16 years old. I was able to get a backstage pass, and it was Rush, Permanent Waves, 1980. And that's pretty awesome. I just looked up that Neil was only 26 <laughs> when I was 16 that year. So... I thought that they were gods at the time. I can't imagine being a god at 26, but he was. It's amazing. The Loop, obviously being outside of Chicago, the Loop has so much history with rock music here, as well as stations like XRT and WMET and other stations too as well. But the Loop really has been, well, now they're no longer, but they were, you know, such a presence for decades in this area and promoting rock music and new rock, especially when the scene really hit in the 80s. Um, 
that's a tremendous first concert, Permanent Waves 1980. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's what we had. We had those types of bands coming through Chicago, like in L.A. or in New York. But um, to have that as the first time, um, what's interesting, you were speaking of the reverberation and how to uh, fix that. I'm very fast fascinated by that. And I'd like to take a listen to that podcast because it was at the International Amphitheater. If you remember, that was a stockyard. <laughs> it's where they paraded around the cows and you picked which one you were going to purchase that day uh, for slaughter or for uh, for stud V. But it's kind of funny when you think of the beautiful concert halls that are there uh, for people to enjoy. <laughs> that was just reverb hell. And it was all good. Yeah. Places like the Riviera, the Aragon Ballroom. The old Gateway Theater, which was really big, the Vic Theater, the Metro. Um, yeah, just so many great theaters here in Chicago, great history behind a lot of them. And, you know, when you think of the bands that came through, like, you know, you mentioned, you know, Rush. I, I've, I've had relatives tell me they saw them at the old Chicago Theater. Nice. You know, or the old Chicago Stadium, um, which was kind of just like a, 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 a soundtrack back in the day. Well, one of the other concerts I remember going to, again, when you grow up in the early, uh, late 70s, early 80s, you uh, in that area, you're not introduced to too many stretches, right? Uh, Bruce Springsteen, you know, that, that that actually was truly kind of a stretch from the REO Speedwagon journey, Cheap Trick, Sticks. That's actually the genre that I kind of grew up, grew up in. Um, it, so it's... It was a cool thing to get into the record industry because it opened up past those four bands that everyone kind of made fun of as corporate rock back in that time. But I saw Kansas at the Uptown Theater that just about a year or two after that. And they had this uh, brand new guy gone, uh, named John Cougar. Excuse me. He, yeah, he was John Cougar at the time. And uh, uh, it was only I, I want to love. Uh, I need a lover. I need a lover that won't drive me crazy. And that was the only song he had. But, man, you could tell that man was going to go through the roof because everyone really got into him. It was like a double bill uh, because he was so good. But Kansas, that was the other one. Uh, Point of no return. Yeah, what a great band, too, as well. You know, you think about the album art and we kind of segue into what we're going to be talking about. You know, Some of those bands and some of those eras, though, really had distinguished things that were very common through the album art you talk about those bands in the late 70s like ario and sticks and journey and it kind of you know whether they were on columbia capital atlantic you know they kind of had a very similar themes to to what they were presenting on that album art and then you went into the 80s and the early part of the 80s had more of that you know, Dungeons and Dragons with the Sabbath Dio type records and the Maiden stuff. And then you had the pop area eras too as well. When, you know, you had Duran Duran and Madonna and all this. It's, it's just a, a, amazing of how as the music kept going, the album art really evolved too as well. And now, you know, album art is really kind of a thing of a past, sadly. It's not as prevalent or not as heavily thought of as it was back then. But when, when, when album art was being developed and covers were being developed, was it important for 
the people developing that art to know the music that was on the album? Oh, of course. Uh, basically, this was this was the shtick. This is how you did it. Um, you proved yourself in the record industry by having a cover that people saw. Right. People wanted the band that was successful that year that went platinum. They wanted that success to rub off on them. So that and it's also that, like you were saying, there were genres and styles that were evolving and people were emulating everyone else because they kind of knew the A&R directors really kind of knew they had to stick into a, a, uh, a system, a, uh, a, a quickly identifiable, this is the genre that I listen to. These guys look like them. One of the, the questions that I always asked when I first started with the band, let's go with Stone Temple Pilots. I did their first cover, Core. When I met them, they played me their first three tracks. And I was sitting on the, on the studio floor just listening to it with the nicest equipment I've ever heard anything from. But to be able to hear by, I would say I was maybe the first 100th person to hear the three tracks that really made that 8 million record selling piece such a success and kept them going for quite a while until Scott's death. The, uh, the reality was is that if you didn't hear the music, you wouldn't be able to actually play off of something. So when I first met them and I didn't hear the music, I said, so when somebody tries to describe you like your manager to someone else, who do they always say? What's the band they always said? And every single time they will say this, oh, we're unique. We sound like no one else <laughs> with stone temple pilots excuse me i could have easily said alice in chains <laughs> right come on be honest help me out help me help you but often they wanted to feel as if they were something unique but what happens is when they sign these bands if there's a success in a style or a look or a flavor or an explosion of that's the one that everyone wants to go after, like grunge, Nirvana. All of a sudden, there were all these other people that sounded from that same er uh, area, right? They just ran off and basically signed anybody that was from the Portland, Seattle area, right? They wanted to make money, and that's what it's all about. And they don't care that they're simply repeating a sound because that's how genres begin. It's like, ooh, I like Led Zeppelin, right? So who are you going to look after in the 70s? You're going to go after bands that sound like them. So when I would be introduced to a band, I would say, okay, they would say, this is your budget. Um, here's the, the manager's uh, beeper number, right? Remember that back in the day? And I would connect with the, the manager. We would set up a time that I could meet with the band and we would go over to their house or go wherever it was. Example with the Beastie Boys, they were at Capitol Records. They just got signed after License to Ill. And I was going to be with them doing Paul's Boutique. So it was a big, huge album, a big, huge explosion. Everybody wanted to hear what their next stuff was. And they, would, they played the music for us. And we kind of understood where it was going. Um, and we would also talk about, well, what does the cover kind of need to say? Because with an album cover, it is one single image that is a band's eight months of coming up with tunes and stories and and it sounds that um, if you were trying to pick a single image of your brother or your mom or, or your dog, you'd have to pick one image for the entire knowledge of what you are 
that 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 um person or or object is to you it's pretty tough for them to actually say oh this is the image so what you do is you get a band together you get only one chance to get a really nice photo shoot together they always need a photo shoot but sometimes we did illustrations right you would do an illustration you pick the illustrator you bring in books and they would look through them they'd have a story um and you try to um match their music and their emotions and all of that that they have packed into those eight to 12 songs and you found that one image if it's an illustration that's one thing if it's a if it's just a photo shoot you go to a photo shoot and you have a full day you you get a wardrobe together right so you have eight to 12 different outfits for each one of these guys to wear and they come up with eight different shots that try to look as if they were done over a three-month period, right? Not the same day. When you have the rollout of an album, you have album cover, you have the back cover, you have maybe some sleeve artwork that's in there. With CDs, you had even more images that you needed. But it was basically just this kind of, here's the depiction of this music that you're about to hear, right? As as a, a purchase uh, from, a, a, from a record store. So what you do is you'd go through, you'd, you'd get eight shots, if you're lucky, on one day, maybe eight to 12. And they're all unique, or at least as unique as you can. You'd do them in the studio. You'd rent a studio. You'd go out to some locations, things like that. But for the most part, they were elevated or nicer than uh, pub shots, publicity shots. It's just a seamless that they're standing in front of. Might be a color, <laughs> but there's, it's just basically you know eight by 10 shots so everyone knows what the band looks like. So once you have those cut, those images, you you go through all of the photos and you with a grease pencil, we used to just on a light table, go through uh, with a loop so you could see it and make sure that everyone looks good. If you have eight people in a band, it's even more difficult than just, you know, somebody's going to be blanking their eyes. Somebody's going to be looking the other direction. So you pick the one that everyone looks at the camera the way that everyone wants. And you suggest by picking good shots that you're going to show the manager and then the band. There's usually one guy or person in the band that's always the most, uh, you know, way into actually making sure that it, uh, this is the look. This is what I want it to sound like, or excuse me, look like Adam Yauk was that in the beastie boys. Um, Steve, excuse me, Scott in Stone Temple Pilots, he was very much the uh, the main uh, voice. But they basically, they'll pick it out. They'll You pick out four great shots. They'll say yes or no on each one of those. And then from there, you get larger prints made and you start making the idea of what is a logo. If they already have one, you work with that. If you don't, you come up with a logo. Um Example with Chicago, they always had the same logo. So it was like, how am I going to uh, change it, this so it looks like the top of a building or if it's embroidered into a flag, all of those types of things are just trying to work with what the band wants. But if they have a crazy ass idea, you have to do it. And if you don't give them that crazy ass idea, they're always going to be looking for it. So they'll never be satisfied with anything else. So well, it's it's basically just getting their okay on an image that we all agree on how much i mean that was going to be my, my first question is how much is the input from the artist you know how much does that impact what you're trying to do there's always someone it might be a manager that's trying to craft their career 
It might be uh, the A&R director who's very, very hands-on. When I did Tupac, there was Tom Wally, who was the A&R director, brand new at Interscope Records. And he was very much a part of making sure that the look was proper in the way that they wanted to approach this brand new artist. I did his first cover as well. So there is always one person who has the loudest voice, and that's the one you listen to. As far as that input from the artist, is, you know, did, did a band ever you know, come up with like a rough sketch of kind of what they wanted for the album, their, their vision, and they wanted you to kind of dance it up a little bit and you know, fill in the colors? Yeah, there's a lot of times that you go to a situation like with Beastie Boys, I came in with all these great ideas that I was hoping that they would love as much as my boss did and I did. And then they just threw them off and said, no, this is the shot that we took in New York. And this is the one. It's just a guy's front of his building in New York. It's Paul's Boutique. It's a strange little curio shop. That's what I want. I was like, well, what does that represent? It's like the a culmination of years of thinking like a curio shop. You go in there and each one of them is unique. So, you know, an item is unique, just like the songs are unique on the album. Right. So they, everyone thinks that they have this kind of concept. Everyone thinks that they have something that's larger than life, but for the most part, what you really want to do is make sure that someone picks it up in a record stop shop in a record shop, because if you have some big, beautiful image, that's going to catch their attention. But if you're the beast, uh, but if you're the Eagles, sorry, but if you are the Beatles, you can make it a white album. If you're Led Zeppelin and someone knows that 10th album is coming out in through the outdoor can be in a brown paper bag and they'll still pick it up and they'll buy it because they're looking for it and they know it's there. Like you were just saying before going into a record store, you might go in there for a particular record because you know that it's dropping that weekend. But you often would come out with a third album that you didn't know you were going to go in there and get. But the album cover is the thing that convinced you because at that time you couldn't pick it up, take it out and listen to it. You had to trust your eyes that your ears would enjoy it. It's really interesting. When you, when you were putting together this documentary, how did you settle on the point of view that you wanted to tell this story? In a six year period, that it took me to get this accomplished as an, in, as an independent production. Think about how many times you change your mind. <laughs> Think about how many times you change your job in six years, right? And you change your vocation, the direction of how many times you paint your bathroom in six years. Well, point, point being is that I started out with I'm a grumpy old man. I hate the fact that the record industry has evolved into something I don't even recognize. And I'm pissed off at him. And I'm pissed off that it isn't that cover that I enjoyed listening to where I would sit down and religiously give a single artist 50 minutes of my time. I would get up halfway. I'd flip it over, put that needle back down, and I would enjoy the other half. But I gave that artist my time. Now, people have playlists and they have exercise routines and they have going to the gym or going to work or doing something else, uh, driving in their car. We don't give an artist the same amount of respect as we used to. So that single 
image was the only thing we could stare at for 50 minutes. There's no wonder <laughs> that that became synonymous with the music that we loved. It's very true because I think back to being a young kid and being in, a, in my bedroom listening to the album and how much that was part of the experience, as I started to say at the beginning of the show. Um, and I think no other genre is affected more by the lack of a tangible piece of art with the music than rock and roll. Because rock and roll really relied on that experience of that wonder, the back cover, the liner notes, you know, inside the album, inside the CD, whatever it was. And now it's point click download, it's background music. Like you said, we don't give the time to the artist as we once did. And, and, and also we don't, uh, in, in a way, we don't give the time to ourselves to enjoy this music that as you get older, you realize that music acts as like a time machine. You know, it takes you back to those moments when you were younger. It takes you back to those moments when things were simple. And as, as the kids today grow up and get older, they're going to miss that because that whole package that was music, the artwork, the music, the, 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 the new knowing what the band was about and what they looked like, it's gone. And, you know, some bands do a good job better than others of packaging themselves these days. But for the most part, album art, physical copies is an afterthought. There was, if we talk Chicago um, radios again, we FM, if you remember that those guys, they were just like WLS. They were just kind of top 40, right? They had this contest that if you put your name in, right? Or called in at a certain time, they had this awesome result. Your, your, the prize was 15 minutes in a record store. You couldn't use a shopping cart, but you could pick up Anything and everything you could put in your hands in a 15-minute period. So I remember thinking, okay, A, ABBA, uh, B, you know, Beatles, right? So I'm thinking left to right, all the way down. How would I go in and access all the music I've always wanted to buy for free? Napster did that for us. But what it did is it left all those album covers in those bins. And it's a memory. Remember going to a mall and there's at least three record stores. Yeah. You don't have that anymore, but you have it in your pocket. You have any song ever produced on Spotify, but what you don't have is the full experience of rubber soul, the full experience of in through the outdoor, right? You have to basically accumulate that yourself. It was all free. Spotify is that same thing. Napster just started the avalanche. I remember opening up Kiss Alive 2 and the gatefold where nice. you open it up. And, you know, for a nine-year-old kid looking at something like that, I, I must have stared at it for hours, stared at it multiple times over a 24-hour period because it was just, it was something that I couldn't comprehend that this is actually happened at a concert and it made you dive deeper into the band into that genre of music wanting to see that band live you had that you know it, it's the thing like where you can touch it and feel it you have more of an appreciation for it now you know there's still album art right you still have a little picture on spotify and apple but again it doesn't grab you the way it used to 
It, it really doesn't. And it's a shame that that has, those days are, are gone. What's interesting about what it has evolved into now is the album is still alive. People love to say it's coming up. It's, it's bigger sales than it ever has been from decades. But what it really is, it, it, it's a beautiful visual that the young artists of today are seeing as what we're describing, this kind of tangible love fest for something physical that you can hold on to. And it's not that one inch. But what's interesting is when the album was something that we would design toward, that's 12 and three eighths, right? 12 inches, right? That's pretty big. And then you went to a CD and that's about four and three quarter. That's five inches. And then you went down to the mini, which is one inch. Now, all three of those things are sales tools, right? Remember when it was in the bin and you'd flip through with your fingers at the top of the album, the top third was where you had to mandatory. You had to put the record name and the logo or the band name had to be because you wanted people to know what they were looking at quickly. It was all about impulse and purchase, right? But then when you get to creating an album, what they're doing nowadays is that that's the first thing they actually start with because it needs the most in production lead time, right? So what's so cool is they don't think about that one inch yet or first. They don't think about the one inch first. They actually think about the album because they have to get it out. So we are now actually, again, influencing what that single piece of art is, but it still has to be recognizable at that one inch. So what you're doing is you're doing kind of a compromise. You're doing something that will read at one inch, but also read and not be too bold, still have detail to it for the album. So you're actually juggling three balls now. How did you start out in this industry? I couldn't get arrested for being a graphic designer, but I had this amazing mentor, Roland Young, who was the head of A&M Records forever. And then he went into teaching. He was at CalArts and also at Art Center in Pasadena. He taught basically every art director that came from the, the left coast knows Roland and knows Roland quite well because he was all about conceptual art, making something that was memorable. One of the, his best covers that he had done was Sticks Equinox. Do you remember the ice cube that's on fire and melting? That was him. He was all about what's the image that's going to resonate and make it so that you remember it days later. He called up one of his best friends, Roy Kahara, who was the Capitol Records art director. He's known for Roy Kahara's cover that to me was the, oh my God, you did that, was Bob Seeger against the wind. With the horses? Recall the horses running towards you, that beautiful illustration. He won a Grammy for that. So every one of these people that I met coming into this were my gods, right? So here I am at Capitol Records. I barely have a decent enough portfolio. He knew that I had a baby of only six months old. And he said, you know what? I'm going to give you a job, but I can only pay you $28,000 a year. And that was $28,000 more a year than I was making. And, he, and I'm kind of going, okay, what I'm hearing is that I'm about to get a job in the Capitol Records Tower, one of the most iconic buildings 
in Los Angeles on the ninth floor, you're going to give me a desk so I can do what I love. I think I might take that opportunity. So he was Roy, Roy, maybe about six months to a year later was removed because they always want new fresh blood. And my next um, art director boss was Tommy Steele. When I went into Tommy Steele's office one day, it was about six months after that, he brought in his portfolio, which was, at the time, tangible record covers, right? So it was thick. It was like a pregnant portfolio because he had that much work that he had done. And I started going through it, and I stopped at one. Damn the Torpedoes, Tom Petty. That was the first album I had ever bought. And here he's my boss. I think I'm going to learn something. As you moved on in your career or started your career, how did you begin with your concepts? Like, what was your thing in terms of putting together the artwork, putting together the concept? Where, would, where did you want to start? Well, what I didn't want to start with was just an album shoot where we had eight photographs of the same damn heads and just drop it on it, right? Think about all movie posters that you've seen where they just have a big head of the big artist than the actor that you want to see. That's an easy way of selling a product. Well, this kind of sucks. I mean, think about Star Wars and that illustration that was done for the, the first one that they emulated throughout the rest of, the, of that series. The ones that really stand out are the ones that have a concept in it. And like I said, with Roland Young and the Equinox cover of a piece of ice on fire, it was about a memorable image. One of the blessings that I got in my life was a friend of mine who used to work at Capitol Records, as I still was at Capitol. He called me up and he said, hey, I got this band I need a cover for, and I need it pretty quick. Let's do it over the weekend. The name of the, the, name of the group is NWA. No one knew who they were. No one was playing gangster rap because they all swore on every damn <laughs> song. So no one knew of them. It was going to be street. No one cared. No one would do this. I did it almost as a favor. So I went up to get a cassette because that's what we would get and listen to it. It's like, oh, okay, gangster rack. It's basically poetry of the streets that were going on at that time, right? Come on. That is L.A. So I listened to it and I get into the Priority Records building. That's where everyone met. The guys from the band, Dre and Ice Cube, Ren, Yella. And I said, okay, this is what I heard from your music. You're new, you're fresh, you're different, and it's your turn. It's your time. So what we're going to do, I'm, we're going to do two photo sh shoots. Again, because I wanted a concept. I wanted an idea. So the first one was... Your music is so strong, so powerful, it knocks the listener out. They are on the ground as if you're about to pop them, put a cap in your ass. So the idea was, I said to Easy e Eric Wright, bring a gun. That's all I told him, just bring a gun. And we got to an alley, and I got the photographer to lay down Eric Poppleton got him to lay down on the ground and shoot straight up as if he just listened to the music for the first time. It blew him away. And now these guys are crowded around to take him out. And that's what it was. It was just a ring of people 
to show the music is so powerful. It is street. If you look at an early Easy E record, Easy Does It, and then you see what I did the very same weekend. I did Easy E, Easy Does It. I, if you look at the two different images, you'll see that there's one where he's just in a jumpsuit like Run DMC. That's LA. That's not LA. That's not LA. That's New York. That's Run DMC. Your gangster rap from Los, the streets of Compton. This is what it should look like. You should be for the Easy E cover, Easy Does It, which is a platinum record. It's you just were riding alongside this car and you're getting into a little road rage. And then they decide to get out of their car and come toward you and discuss it. And what it was is there are eight gangsters coming to kick your ass. So if you look at that cover, that's where I said, you got to look street. You're hard. This is what your music is. You don't get it. You're not New York. You're L.A. So the other album, the other image that I had um, as a thought was this is kind of like. The civil rights movement, because everyone wanted to ban rap. So I said, this is your voice. You need to be heard. It's your time. That was the thought. So I said, I found this shoeshine place in downtown L.A. I want you to be up there waiting to be, be served because it's your time. So I had this little white girl role reversal. OK, role reversal. I had a little white girl. And she's dirty and she's in overalls and she's sitting there eating watermelon. And you're got, you guys are there waiting for your shoes to be shined because it is your turn. Easy E turned to me and he says, you're a crazy motherfucker. I know you can't say that. So I'll say you are the craziest white man I've ever met. Basically, that's kind of stuff. They're just they just shit with me all the time. They would just harass me all the time because I would just say stuff. And I was like, that's crazy stuff. First of all, you have a gun. Can't do that. Now you have the role pointing out black against white. That's crazy. You don't want to touch that. It's like you're already touching it. So the little girl wouldn't sit in that shot. So I said, all right, I have to get in there. So I went in there. And I pretend to be shining Easy E's shoes. They're tennis shoes. You don't, you don't shine tennis shoes. But I had to fake it because that little girl, my whole shtick wouldn't work if she wasn't in it. So she stayed in it. And here I am. If you look at Gangsta Gangsta, the 12-inch, which is also platinum, you'll see me shining the shoes. And to my left is my daughter, Ariel, who is now 37 years old. So when I first met Tupac to do his first cover, we met at the Burbank airport. We're in a restaurant. We're talking. At a certain point, I said, I, I'm sorry, I have to go to the bathroom if you don't mind. So I go in and I'm standing at the urinal. Tupac walks in. He goes, that's where I've seen you before. And I go, well, that's kind of weird. You know, somebody mentioning that and here I am at a urinal. He goes, that's where I've seen you before. You're on that cover. You're on the NWA cover, aren't you? It was the fade that I have. If you look at the gangster cover, gangster gangster cover, if you look at the gangster gangster cover, you'll see I had this fade that was recognizable, white, blonde hair dripped down like it was Duran Duran or or um flock of seagulls at the time. And that's how he recognized me, which is funny because 
he's kind of an important special rock rap icon. And for him to actually have known who I, you know, just my, he, he saw me before. That's kind of cool, you know, and just recognize me. It's like, I'm just Kevin Hosman. And I did all of this stuff before I was 24. But as, as far as the concepts goes, like what was your muse? What was your, was it different for each artist or was there a process for you? No, it's always different for each artist and it's how much you could get away with. When I was with Ice Cube and we did Kill at Will, which is also a platinum record, I gave him a gun and I said, you know, instead of we already did NWA, right? He's out of NWA. This is his second album out. And the idea was his his name of his he he cut Ice Cube came up with the name Kill at Will. I didn't want this stupid. Oh, we're going to you know, he's going to point a gun at you also. That's just we already did that with NWA. Right. I said, how about this? How about kill at will you're handing the viewer the gun as if he and no, and and on your face you got to have that 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 look like i know you don't got the balls to shoot here it is i've got the power i have so much power i can give you my power and you wouldn't know what to do with it so what you do is you come up with a good relationship with the band they're going to come halfway they're going to give you a a piece of a frag a little piece of paper and said, here, this is what I want. This is the start. What, what are you going to do with it? What do you think we can do with this? And then you just fill in the blanks. That's when it's a great relationship and a, it's a collaboration, but often they'll come to you and they'll say, look, this is what we want to put together. My blessing also was the fact that most of the covers that I had done, I'm known for were all, Everyone's first cover, MC Hammer, first cover, Stone Temple Pilots, first cover, Easy e Ice Cube, Tupac, all of those people, that was their first cover. They didn't know they could be an asshole yet. They didn't know they could be a jerk. So the first time that you get them in a sound studio, they're like, wow, this is cool. All of this is for me. You order pizza. You know, you, you have Ice Cube nowadays. He's a great guy. Great guy. But if, if you had Ice Cube or if you had Dre, a billionaire, walk into your studio and you got pizza, they're going to say, what is this? Is this my freshman album? No, I'm a star. This isn't what you feed a star. When you think about the, the documentary and, and putting it through and, and taking that perspective from the from the um, the art department of the record company did you learn anything throughout this process that maybe you hadn't considered you know talking with other people while you were making this i realized that everybody was as young as i was when you first make your mark like i said before my first beginning this is what this is going to be for me i'm going to make a movie that says this i hate you record company you moved on like i was a you know, a dumped boyfriend, right? But what it really is, and this is what I didn't know until the very end, everybody that I interviewed, John Kosh, he's 80, right? He did Abbey Road. He did Who's Next? Let It Be. Hotel California. But when he did 
Abbey Road, his first real cover, he was in his 20s too. So what happens is you realize, and I didn't know this, Jerry Hyden, the queen of Warner Brothers and who had done all of the Madonna, all of the pink, all pink, all prints, right? Um, The talking heads. She did all of that. But she started that department when she was 22. So just like the bands, they're 16, 18, 20. They, they make a record and they get it out there. If you can keep that success, you might be 30 by the time you're a failure because success doesn't last as long as your lifetime. So everyone, artists, art directors, photographers, we all move into the next genre of our journey in design. For me, it was going into the dot-com because that's actually what happened. I had I hit the dot-com and the dot-bomb because there was this neat thing called the internet that just was invented. That lured me away from the record industry. After 25 gold records and platinum records, you can't do that any longer than, say, eight to 10 years. Some people are really good at it. Jerry Hyden is still in the works. She's brilliant, but there's only a few of them. I can count them on my hand. We all have to move on and evolve. And that's what the record industry did as well. And that's what rock and roll bands realized too. They basically have three to five albums if they're lucky. And the rest of them, their fans are looking for what those first few records sounded like. And they never get back because they're never 20 again. What do you think about the resurgence uh, of vinyl? I think it's awesome. I think it's fantastic. I think it's neat that, like I said, they start with that. So it's influencing the design of that single image. But I think it's one of those things that's it's just like a concert T-shirt. Unfortunately, it's merchandise. What used to be the storyline is that the concert tour promoted the album. Now it's the album promoting the tour. They make more money on merchandise and a hell of a lot more on touring than they do when someone's stealing or downloading like Spotify and they're not getting but two pennies, right? No one owns a record anymore. So what are you going to sell them? But a concert and a memory. With the advent of streaming and, you know, the, the, now it's a singles business now, you know, it's, Albums are, are becoming more and more rare. EPs are are becoming more popular than they were. Um, you know, are there still art departments with these record companies or is it farmed out? Is it outsourced? Kind of like everything is now. The art department always was a creative director, always had to be there. It's the traffic cop and also the voice of reason and the person who signed off on the budgets. And then you have an art director and a designer and a production person. Those people tend to have still stayed. They're not as many in a department. Warner Brothers had 12 people. Now I think they're more down to about three, four. But they always had freelancers out there. They had really big names and they had really cheap names, like the, the guy that'll do anything just to get his start, which was me. Those farmed out people still exist, but they're certainly not getting the same budgets as they used to. 
And the other thing that's getting in the way are iPhones and girlfriends of band members, because I'm, I'm doing that silly. But anyone and everyone with a camera thinks that they can take a great shot. And you know what? A lot of times they will, because that girlfriend that I was just very rudely saying that about um, is that she knows that band better than we do. And she knows those intimate moments where she can capture something or he. They can capture things that we won't have. We won't be around at that time that magic occurs. So now we can have anyone document something, especially when it's only going to be for a CD or a one inch. You can take it on your iPhone. And they do because often they don't have the budget to do anything but that. Is there something that we are not thinking of that could bring back the importance of art, you know, whether it's on a website or whether it's something with the band, maybe it's a t-shirt that becomes recognizable again, becomes, it gives the fan that sense of wonder again, or is that part of the experience gone forever? It's gone into merchandising, quite honestly, because the billboards are now somebody's t-shirt right i went down to san antonio just this weekend to visit my mom this is just texas and i think i counted seven t-shirts for nirvana remember that smiley face the drawing of the smiley face for naps the smiley face drawing was actually get the smiley face drawing actually got into a legal issue by a designer that used it on something, slightly modified it, and NW and Nirvana, the the people who own that property now, went after them full force because they said Kurt Cobain drew that. Kurt Cobain did not draw that. That was the art director of that album, Robert Fisher. So now what is happening is that you have these iconic images that occur logos that are put on a, a an album cover like Lincoln Park people are now tattooing it on their their forearm and on their their shoulder and on their shoulder blades so there is this strange kind of um because the album maybe is not there these things are still part of intrinsic to that music and that that love, that passion, so that people are tattooing their bodies with it or wearing it as a T-shirt or a hat. So you see those icons, you see that thing. It reminds me, it reminds everyone of that music and the memories that they had with it. And it doesn't just stop with Nirvana. Come on, that was years ago, decades ago. It continues with a Billie Eilish or anyone else that has an iconic image that people want, pink. But it, yeah, it's, it's quite honest. I don't mean to be so preachy and arrogant sounding. I really don't. I, it's just these things. I've 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 seen it, <laughs> and I'm I've lived it to the wow. I, I've like I've 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 gone to the mountaintop. <laughs> I've seen all these people and and how people react to stuff. And there's still posters and there's still artwork and there's still this tangible thing to a band. But nowadays, because people have gone onto their iPhones and they've gone to Spotify and they've gone into Instagram and TikTok, people expect that brand of all that music they love to be at the place that they're in, the watering hole that they go to. 
people don't go to a record store because they don't exist. Record stores are everywhere. They go where everyone is at, and that is their phone. And that's where they live. And they produce artwork that's daily. And and they create videos that capture the attention of their peers. And they have followings that are millions. We didn't have that with an album. But I bet you $100, if you had the Beatles today, just starting out with Meet the Beatles, you don't think they'd be on Instagram? You don't think they would be shoving out an image every day? They did with their albums, their music, and their movies. They found platforms that they could, at that time, keep their face in front of everybody. As John Lennon said, we're bigger than Jesus Christ, and he got in trouble. But look at how many downloads you get of a Bible compared to how many downloads you get of Spotify or any of these other huge bands that are captivating the soul of America. They're still there. The relationship, the romance is still alive. People love music. What's your favorite album cover? It's kind of a squirrely one. It only, again, like you said, it brings back memories. Kansas, when we saw them at the Uptown Theater, I was 17. I didn't even start. I wasn't out of high school yet. I, the, in six months, I would be starting to go to Chicago Art Institute and start a trade, try to be a graphic designer. Uptown Theater. I took the L to get there with my brother. He was going to Loyola University down, downtown. And they played. And it just captivated me. I loved that concert. It was the first one that I knew all the songs, right? But they did two for the show, which a double live. And it was two women sitting in the crap. It was two cleaning women looking at a program from the show. They had their mops off to the side and it was done in the way of Norman Rockwell. So there was, you know, the, There were a lot of people who kind of emulated different uh, painting styles. This was done in Norman Rockwell kind of style. And they're just looking at that program as if, what were these kids doing? (laughs) And why did they make such a mess? But that album reminds me of the point that I was at where I was still a kid sleeping in my own bed at my mom's house. And within six months, I would be on the journey of trying to make those covers for myself. But that reminds me of the day I walked through the door at Capitol Records. Great stuff, Kevin. It's been a uh, a joy talking with you about this because I am passionate about that physical, tangible piece that I knew and loved when I was younger. And and I wish my son and the, his generation had that same that same passion about it. But it's a, it's Amen. a very important topic. Love it, and I think the podcast that you do and all your friends that you had mentioned at the beginning audience out there please listen to all of them because they're in for the same thing the love for the music the stuff that our memories are about but the fact that you're doing this and keeping it going keep it going everyone that's kevin hosman you can check out the documentary the album where can they find it (laughs) they will find it on Amazon Prime. I have to upload it because my distribution is only in the UK. (laughs) 
So you're catching me with my pants down. Um, but look, Amazon Prime, all you got to do is say the album in a search and you'll find it. Give me about a week to actually get it out there. <laughs> Kevin, it's been a blast. Thanks for doing this, everyone. I'm Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks. Take care of each other. We'll talk soon. Thanks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.